Eight, FDR's death and legacy, approximately five minutes. As you walk through the doorway of a wall suggesting a map of the globe, you'll step from carpeting onto a wood floor. You will also hear the strains of a mournful violin. About three feet in front of you, to your right, is a ten feet high by eight feet wide reproduction of the front page of a newspaper with FDR's photograph and the headline, President Dead. The date, April 12th, 1945 is affixed to the panel in bold, raised type. Feel free to trace the outline of the letters. The text reads, On the morning of April 12, 1945, an exhausted President Roosevelt awoke in his cottage at the presidential retreat in Warm Springs, Georgia. Worn down by heart disease and the stresses of wartime leadership, FDR had come to Georgia to restore his strength after the Yalta Conference. At 1 p.m., he was studying papers and sitting for a portrait painter when he suddenly complained of a terrific headache. Seconds later, he collapsed. Within hours, he was dead of a massive cerebral hemorrhage. Turn left, walk about six feet, and turn left. Under the words, A Nation in Mourning, a large black-and-white aerial photograph shows a large roadway with crowds of people lining the road on each side. In the center of the wall is a video monitor with images of Roosevelt's funeral and the many people attending, including a large group of people using wheelchairs. The film is activated as you walk through the entryway by a motion sensor in the ceiling. Turn right and walk about two feet to face a wall covered with a black-and-white photograph of a crowd of men and women mourning the death of FDR. To listen to additional information about this exhibit, please press 811 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to this additional information, please proceed about six feet further along to your right. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 811. America Mourns. Text reads, America Mourns. I lay in my berth all night with the window shade up, looking out at the countryside he had loved and watching the faces of the people at stations and even at the crossroads who came to pay their last tribute. I was truly surprised by the people along the way. I never realized the full scope of the devotion to him until after he died, until that night and after. Eleanor Roosevelt, describing the northward journey of FDR's funeral train. FDR's sudden death stunned the world. Few had known of the severity of his health problems. The public's shock was magnified by the fact that Roosevelt had been America's chief executive for over 12 years. Young Americans had no memory of any other president. The timing of his death, at a moment when victory in World War II seemed at hand, added to the country's grief. Some newspapers included his name on their daily list of war casualties. In Warm Springs, where he died, FDR's casket was placed on a funeral train that carried him to Washington, D.C. Thousands lined the tracks in silent tribute as the train passed through towns and cities on its journey. After a solemn procession through Washington and a White House funeral, 
the president's train continued north to Hyde Park, where FDR was buried on April 15, 1945. About six feet along to your right, a second panel is surrounded with additional black and white photographs of people mourning, including a man with a military hat with tears streaming down his face. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. To listen to more information about the impact of FDR's death on Eleanor and his final days with Lucy Mercer Rutherford, please press 812 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to this information, please turn around 180 degrees, walk about 8 feet forward, and turn right. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 812, Remembering FDR. The panel is entitled Remembering FDR and includes this text. People told their complete stories and cited the plans and policies undertaken by my husband that had brought about improvement in their lives. In many cases, he had saved them from complete despair. Eleanor Roosevelt, This I Remember, 1949. In the weeks after the president's death, Eleanor Roosevelt received tens of thousands of condolence letters. The messages came from Americans of all ages, races, regions, and classes. Many people described how FDR had touched their lives. Mrs. Roosevelt found the outpouring overwhelming. It was quite impossible for me to answer them all personally as I should have liked to do, she later wrote, but I have always felt that in them, future historians would find the explanation of why one man was four times elected to the office of President of the United States. Below the panel is a photograph of Eleanor and her daughter dressed in black, Eleanor wearing a black veil and hat. To the right on this wall are six framed letters of sympathy to Eleanor Roosevelt from ordinary citizens, some typed, others handwritten. Another three feet further on, the room makes a turn to the right. On the wall to the right is the last photograph of FDR, seated in a chair and looking straight ahead. A text panel entitled, FDR and Lucy Mercer Rutherford, reads, Among the people with FDR at Warm Springs during his final days was Lucy Mercer Rutherford, after her affair with FDR ended in 1918, Lucy had married wealthy widower Winthrop Rutherford and raised a family in New Jersey. But she and FDR continued to correspond, and during the 1940s, they began seeing each other again. Lucy was with FDR when he was stricken on April 12, 1945, but she left Warm Springs before he died. Eleanor learned of FDR's renewed contact with Lucy after the president's death. Although Eleanor's sense of betrayal was revived, her daughter Anna, who assisted in arranging the meetings, believed Lucy's presence in FDR's life helped him through the lonely and stressful war years. About three feet to the right of this text panel is a fire exit door. Walk to the right about six feet with this exit on your left. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off 
in the base message. You are standing at the entrance to a square room, roughly 20 feet wide. Long benches sit along the left and right walls of the room. About five feet to the right, as you walk further into the room, is a painted portrait of FDR sitting in a chair in the Oval Office, with his mouth somewhat downturned. For brief additional information about this portrait, please press 813 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 813, FDR Portrait, Francis Owen Salisbury, Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1935. This oil portrait by Francis Owen Salisbury depicts President Roosevelt at his Oval Office desk. It was painted from life in January 1935. This is one of three versions of the Salisbury portrait. The original was commissioned by Myron Taylor for the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society. Salisbury later made this copy for FDR. In 1947, President Harry S. Truman asked Salisbury to create a second copy to serve as the official White House portrait of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Gift of Eleanor Roosevelt you will now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. In the center of this bright room is a replica of FDR's Oval Office desk within a huge 8 feet square glass case. Walk forward about 5 feet to reach the case. The case is sitting on a round navy blue rug with white stars around its perimeter. Please walk around to the opposite side of the desk to stand in front of an interactive touchscreen display about waist-high that juts out from the glass desk case about 12 inches. To listen to a more detailed description of FDR's desk and the items sitting on top of it, please press 814 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 814, FDR's Oval Office Desk. Text reads, Franklin Roosevelt used this desk and chair in the White House Oval Office throughout the 12 years he served as President of the United States. At this historic desk, he signed the act creating the Tennessee Valley Authority, the declarations of war with Japan and Germany, the GI Bill, and other landmark laws. Here he also met with national and world leaders and presided over hundreds of press conferences. The desk was used previously by President Herbert Hoover. It was presented to Hoover by the Grand Rapids Furniture Manufacturers Association in 1930. When President Roosevelt took office, he kept the furnishings he inherited from his predecessor. The objects on the desk all belonged to FDR. They are arranged largely as they were at the time of his death. Items on the desk include an old black telephone that does not have number keys or a number dial, a desk calendar from 1945, several one- to three-inch statues of various animals, a silver water pitcher and glass, a small American flag about six inches long, and a typewritten schedule with meetings from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Also on the desk 
is a photo collage of FDR's four sons in their military uniforms. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. Five large six feet wide by ten feet tall floor-standing text panels surround the room against the walls, displaying FDR's four freedoms and a quote from his annual message to Congress in January 1941. In the center, the panel reads, In the future days, which we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. Franklin D. Roosevelt, Annual Message to Congress, January 6, 1941. The surrounding panels read, The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is freedom from want everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear anywhere in the world. This concludes the eighth section of our tour. Please walk to the left about four feet away from the entrance to the room. Turn on a slight angle to the right. Walk about ten feet to a doorway into the next room with a carpeted floor. You can access the audio description for the next section of our tour, The First Lady of the World, by pressing the rightmost button in the top row of your player's keypad or press 9 on your audio tour player. 9. The First Lady of the World. Approximately 7 minutes. Walking through the doorway onto a carpeted floor, you have entered a rectangular room about 30 feet long by 10 feet wide, with several glass display cases arranged in the center of the room down its length. About three feet in front of you is a small three-feet-high square table with a three-feet glass-enclosed cube displaying Eleanor Roosevelt's typewriter. She used this circa 1904-1905 Smith & Corona typewriter when working on books, articles, and newspaper columns at her Val Kill home. The exhibits along the right-hand wall include information about Eleanor's activities after Franklin's death, becoming the First Lady of the World, and include a timeline of her accomplishments over the course of the rest of her life. A text panel to your right proclaims Eleanor the First Lady of the World. The story is over. That is what Eleanor Roosevelt told reporters several days after FDR's death. She seemed to believe, at least for a moment, that her role on the national stage had ended. But E.R.'s story was far from over. From 1945 until her death in 1962, she pursued a host of national and increasingly international causes. She played a critical role in fostering human rights, tirelessly promoted the United Nations, and became one of liberalism's most effective champions. A constant traveler, she crisscrossed the globe, meeting with citizens and world leaders, investigating conditions, and seeking solutions. She became, in President Harry Truman's words, First Lady of the World. About three feet along the wall to the left is another text panel to the right that reads, Al Kill Cottage in Hyde Park and an apartment in New York City. 
Though she refused offers to run for political office, E.R. assured her friends, my voice will not be silent. She continued her work as a nationally syndicated columnist, lecturer, author, and social activist. Soon, opportunities for public service beckoned. In December 1945, President Harry Truman appointed her to America's first delegation to the United Nations. It was the first of many public challenges E.R. accepted over the next 17 years, years filled with politics, writing, and travel. A timeline of Eleanor's life from Franklin's death on April 12, 1945, to her death on November 7, 1962, and posthumous nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1963, continues about 20 feet down along this wall to your left. Interspersed along the way are four large-scale wall photographs of Eleanor, various dignitaries, and her children, along with several quotes from Eleanor herself. To listen to the information contained in this timeline, please press 911 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to this information, please turn left, walk about 8 feet, and turn around 180 degrees to face the long plexiglass case in the center of the room. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, please press the right arrow key. Layer 911, Eleanor Timeline, Eleanor Roosevelt, 1945-1962. April 12, 1945, Franklin Roosevelt dies. May 1945, joins the board of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. Fall 1945, joins the board of the Congress on Racial Equality, CORE. December 1945, appointed to the first U.S. delegation to the United Nations by President Harry Truman. 1946, publishes If You Ask Me, her 13th book. 1947, helps to found the Americans for Democratic Action, ADA. 1947 to 1948, chairs the Human Rights Commission of the United Nations as it develops the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. December 10, 1948, the United Nations formally accepts the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. ER considers this her greatest achievement at the UN. 1948 to 1949, co-hosts the Eleanor and Anna Roosevelt Show on ABC Radio. 1949, publishes This I Remember, the second volume of her autobiography. 1950, publishes Partners, the United Nations and Youth. 1950 to 1951, hosts the Eleanor Roosevelt Program on NBC Radio. 1953, resigns from her position at the United Nations after Dwight D. Eisenhower becomes president. Begins work as a volunteer for the American Association for the United Nations. Makes a round-the-world trip, including five weeks studying the progress of democracy in Japan. During her trip, she interviews President Tito of Yugoslavia in July. Publishes India and the Awakening East. Publishes UN Today and Tomorrow. 1954. Publishes It Seems to Me. 
publishes Ladies of Courage with Lorena Hickok. 1955 publishes United Nations, What You Should Know About It. 1956 works with Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks to raise money during the Montgomery bus boycott. August 1956 chairs the platform hearings on civil rights at the 1956 Democratic National Convention, helps draft a plank supporting the Supreme Court's authority to order school desegregation. August 13, 1956, addresses the 1956 Democratic National Convention. Fall 1956, supports Adelaide Stevenson in his unsuccessful campaign as the Democratic presidential candidate. 1957, travels to the Soviet Union as a journalist and interviews Soviet Premier Nikita S. Khrushchev at Yalta in September. 1958, publishes On My Own, the third volume of her autobiography, helps found the National Issues Committee. December 7, 1959, at a dinner honoring her 75th birthday, E.R. responds sharply to former President Harry Truman, who had criticized hothouse liberals he felt were harming liberalism. I know we need a united party, E.R. replies, but it cannot be a united party that gives up its principles. 1959 to 1962 hosts Prospects of Mankind program on WGBH-TV, Boston. 1960 publishes Growing Toward Peace with Regina Tor. Publishes You Learn by Living. July 13, 1960 addresses the 1960 Democratic National Convention in support of Adlai Stevenson's unsuccessful bid for the Democratic presidential nomination. August 14, 1960, hosts Democratic candidate John F. Kennedy at her Val Kill home. After their meeting, she endorses JFK for president. 1961, at President Kennedy's request, co-chairs the non-governmental Tractors for Freedom Committee, formed to negotiate an exchange of farm equipment for American-backed fighters captured in Cuba during the Bay of Pigs operation. December 1961, appointed chair of the President's Commission on the Status of Women by President Kennedy. Publishes the autobiography of Eleanor Roosevelt. Publishes Your Teens and Mine. 1962. Publishes Eleanor Roosevelt's Book of Common Sense Etiquette. November 7, 1962. Dies in New York City of aplastic anemia, disseminated tuberculosis and heart failure. 1963, Eleanor Roosevelt's Christmas book and E.R.'s final book, Tomorrow is Now, are published. Nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. You will now be redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. About halfway down this timeline is an eight feet long table with a rectangular glass case stretching down the center of the room. It displays the many books Eleanor wrote during her lifetime. Text inside the case reads, Prolific Writer. E.R. maintained her prolific literary output during the post-war years. While continuing to write her six-day-a-week My Day column, she also found time to author 13 books and countless magazine articles. 
facing the right wall at the end of the timeline, please retrace your steps back to the typewriter at the head of this exhibit to continue down the other side wall of the gallery. Turn right and walk about three feet to the other long wall of the room. The exhibits along the left-hand wall include information about Eleanor's activities as a United Nations delegate and a Democratic activist, along with information of her work as a women's rights advocate and civil rights champion. If you'd like to listen to a description of this information, please press 912 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to this information, please turn right and walk about 25 feet. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 912, Eleanor Roosevelt, Exemplary Citizen. A text panel to your left reads, United Nations Delegate. We stand today at the threshold of a great event, both in the life of the United Nations and in the life of mankind. This declaration may well become the International Magna Carta, of all men everywhere. Eleanor Roosevelt, speech to UN General Assembly on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, December 9, 1948. In December 1945, seeking to signal America's commitment to the new United Nations organization and cement his ties to a powerful Democratic Party figure, President Harry Truman appointed Eleanor Roosevelt to America's first delegation to the General Assembly. ER quickly became a major force on refugee and human rights issues. From 1946 to 1951, she chaired the UN Human Rights Commission, leading the effort to draft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. An able and determined negotiator, she clashed frequently with Soviet delegates over the definition of human liberties. In the process, she pushed the State Department to recognize that human rights are not only civil and political rights, but social and economic rights, too. The declaration was ER's proudest achievement at the UN. It created the modern definition of human rights. Today, it is the standard for establishing norms governing international behavior regarding the rights of individuals. Continue down the room about three feet to a plexiglass display case that juts out from the wall about six inches, containing her draft of the preamble to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Walk another six feet forward to another plexiglass case on your left containing a memo of a meeting with John F. Kennedy, where she assesses Kennedy and displays her keen political instincts. To the right of that case, a text panel reads, Democratic Activist. We must know what we think and speak out, even at the risk of unpopularity. In the final analysis, a democratic government represents the sum total of the courage and the integrity of its individuals. It cannot be better than they are. In the long run, there is no more exhilarating experience than to determine one's position, state it bravely, then act boldly. Eleanor Roosevelt, Tomorrow is Now, 1963. Eleanor Roosevelt became a formidable figure in the post-war Democratic Party. She shrewdly used her status as the widow of a revered leader to maximize her influence. Harry Truman courted her support, appointing her to America's first U.N. delegation and soliciting her opinion on many issues. 
1948, she backed Truman for president after he adopted a strong civil rights platform. During the 1950s, she battled Southern Dixiecrats and campaigned for numerous candidates whose stances she embraced. A tough political insider, she helped Adlai Stevenson secure the Democratic presidential nomination in 1952 and 1956. In 1960, E.R. again favored Stevenson for president and spoke on his behalf at the Democratic Convention. After John F. Kennedy won the nomination, he journeyed to Val Kill to secure E.R.'s endorsement, a measure of her power. When he spoke out against racial discrimination, she campaigned for him. Proceed another six feet to a third display case containing a letter E.R. wrote President Truman in June 1946 to urge him to bring more women into his administration. There is also a letter from JFK to Eleanor thanking her for agreeing to chair the President's Commission on the Status of Women. A text panel to the right of this display case talks about E.R.'s role as a women's rights advocate. Too often, the great decisions are originated and given form in bodies made up wholly of men. Even in countries where for many years women have voted and been eligible for public office, there are still too few women serving in positions of real leadership. Eleanor Roosevelt, UN Deliberations on Draft Convention on the Political Rights of Women, January 5, 1953. ER made important contributions to the post-war women's rights movement. Long an advocate for the advancement of women in government, she continued to lobby for women's appointments within presidential administrations and at the UN and urged women to run for political office. During the war, Eleanor had been an advocate for women on equality of pay in defense industries and government-funded daycare. Now she dropped her long-standing opposition to an equal rights amendment to the Constitution. In 1961, E.R. accepted John F. Kennedy's invitation to chair the President's Commission on the Status of Women. But her final illness in 1962 forced her to stop working with the committee before its final report was issued. Another six feet along this wall, we come to an exhibit about Eleanor Roosevelt's role as a civil rights champion. A text panel on the left reads, Staying aloof is not a solution. It is a cowardly evasion. Eleanor Roosevelt on Civil Rights, Tomorrow is Now, 1963. When she left the White House, E.R. shed the constraints it imposed on her civil rights activities. In 1945, she joined the boards of the NAACP and the Congress of Racial Equality, Corps. Soon, she was lobbying President Truman to end the poll tax and establish a permanent Fair Employment Practices Commission. E.R. used her My Day newspaper column to criticize segregated schools and other racial injustices, and to rally support for civil rights activists and court challenges. She helped raise money during the Montgomery bus boycott and drafted a civil rights platform plank at the 1956 Democratic National Convention. During her last years, E.R. became impatient with the pace of racial reform. 
The violence against the Freedom Riders in 1961 provoked her anger. She began identifying more strongly with activists who were struggling to end segregation through direct action. To the right of this text panel is a plexiglass case with her draft for a magazine article on segregation. In handwritten notes, she argues segregation in the U.S. is harming America in its international struggle against communism. Walking about another six feet along this left-hand wall, we come to a panel under the Justice heading with text that reads, Confronting Hatred. You gain strength, courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You must do the thing you think you cannot do. Eleanor Roosevelt, You Learn by Living, 1960. Eleanor Roosevelt's outspoken support of civil liberties, and especially civil rights, made her the target of vicious personal attacks. E.R. responded with courage and fortitude, defying hate mail and death threats. She continued traveling, often alone, to lecture and meet with civil rights leaders and activists. Her fearlessness was demonstrated in 1958 when she traveled to Tennessee to attend an integration workshop at the Highlander Folk School, an interracial training center devoted to labor and civil rights. The FBI warned her that the local Ku Klux Klan planned to raid the school during her appearance. The local sheriff was a Klan sympathizer, and authorities could not guarantee her safety. Eleanor refused to cancel her plans. She drove unescorted over country roads to reach the school and speak at the workshop as scheduled. To the right of this text panel is a plexiglass case with a partial transcript from the Eleanor and Anna Roosevelt show, featuring a sharp attack by E.R. on the Ku Klux Klan. Six feet further along this wall, we come to a final text panel about Eleanor Roosevelt's activities as a Cold War critic under the Freedom heading. What is going on in the Un-American Activities Committee worries me. We find ourselves living in the atmosphere of a police state where people close doors before they state what they think or look over their shoulders apprehensively before they express an opinion. Eleanor Roosevelt, My Day Newspaper Column, October 29, 1947. The Soviet Union's brutal occupation of Eastern Europe and ER's first-hand exposure to its obstructionism at the United Nations made her deeply mistrustful of the Soviets. During the early Cold War years, she supported the Truman Doctrine and helped found the liberal anti-communist organization Americans for Democratic Action. ADA. But E.R. worried about the Cold War's impact on civil liberties. She expressed grave misgivings about President Truman's 1947 government loyalty program. In 1955, she signed a petition seeking amnesty for American communists jailed under the Smith Act. And she took courageous stands against the reckless charges of extreme anti-communists, especially the House Un-American Activities Committee and Wisconsin Senator Joseph R. McCarthy. Her outspoken stance and her association with the civil rights movement made her a constant target of red baiters. A plexiglass case to the right of this panel contains two documents, 
In a draft letter to President Truman, Eleanor expresses concern that we are doing what the Soviets would do in trying to repress anything which we are afraid might not command public support in order to ensure acceptance of our own actions. And in a draft of her My Day newspaper column, she condemns the slurs and accusations made by Senator McCarthy. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. About two feet beyond the end of the central glass display is a five-feet-tall metal filing cabinet containing Eleanor Roosevelt's FBI file. To listen to more information about this exhibit, please press 913 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 913, Eleanor and the FBI. Eleanor Roosevelt's FBI file. A lifetime of activism brought Eleanor Roosevelt the gratitude and devotion of millions of people. However, J. Edgar Hoover, who led the Federal Bureau of Investigation from 1924 until 1972, was deeply suspicious of E.R.'s political activities and associates, especially when it came to civil rights and civil liberties. Hoover falsely believed she was a communist or a communist pawn. The FBI gathered an enormous file on Mrs. Roosevelt, one of the largest ever compiled on an individual. This voluminous file began in 1924 and continued until her death in 1962. It eventually grew to over 3,000 pages. Many of ER's critics volunteered information to the FBI, and the file is full of unsubstantiated gossip. Almost 90% of the file concerns her civil rights work. Open the middle drawer of the cabinet to examine part of ER's FBI file. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. From a position facing the front of the file cabinet, turn right and walk around the cabinet. Continue about 10 feet further along to a small table against the far wall of this gallery. Within a plexiglass case is a suitcase used by Eleanor on many of her far-flung travels during the 1950s and 60s. The case sits in front of a wall-sized black-and-white photograph that depicts Eleanor Roosevelt alone and outdoors carrying the suitcase at LaGuardia Airport in New York City. From a position facing the suitcase, turn around 180 degrees and walk about six feet on a slight angle to the left to a display about ER as a radio and TV personality. To listen to additional information on Eleanor Roosevelt's career as a radio and TV personality, as well as various ER TV segments, please press 914 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 914, ER on radio and TV. Text reads, Eleanor Roosevelt's career as a radio and television personality started during the 1920s when she began speaking about public issues on New York radio stations. Later, as First Lady, she was interviewed on countless radio shows, commenting on news events and public policy. 
They also hosted several current events programs. In 1939, WNBC called her the First Lady of Radio. Though she donated her radio fees to charity, ER endured criticism from some who felt this work was inappropriate. After the war, ER expanded her radio appearances. In 1948, 1949, she co-hosted the Eleanor and Anna Roosevelt show on the ABC radio network with her daughter. In 1950 to 1951, the Eleanor Roosevelt program appeared on the NBC network. ER was also a guest on television news programs, including Meet the Press and Face the Nation. From 1959 to 1962, she hosted Prospects of Mankind for WGBH-TV in Boston. Just to the right of this panel is a small video display embedded in the wall with audio wands hanging underneath with which you can listen to various ER TV segments. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. On the wall to the left of this panel is a five feet square wall-mounted plexiglass case showing the contents of Eleanor's wallet after her death in 1962. They include materials reflecting her travels and professional associations, as well as more personal items, including a number of poems and prayers. From a position facing this last exhibit, turn around 180 degrees and walk about five feet forward. Step off the carpet onto two steps and then onto a landing at the top of the stairs. Step from the landing to a carpeted hallway about 20 feet long. There are two unisex bathrooms on your left, about three and six feet ahead. On your right, about three feet ahead, is a doorway into a small vestibule off to the right. Immediately to the left, inside the vestibule, is a pair of water fountains. To the right, about three feet inside the vestibule, is an elevator. This is the back side of the elevator used to reach the lower level. On your right, about five feet past the vestibule doorway, is a third unisex bathroom. About six feet further down on your right, beyond the bathroom, is an emergency exit, a set of double wooden doors with panic bar latches. This concludes the ninth section of our tour. The audio description for the next section of our tour, Legacy, begins as you turn left away from the emergency doors at the end of the hallway. You can access the audio description by pressing the rightmost button in the top row of your player's keypad or press 10 on your audio tour player. 10. Legacy. Approximately two minutes. From a position with the middle of the two emergency doors on your right, turn left and walk forward about 8 feet into a 12 feet wide rectangular lobby area at the back of a small theater. Note that to your left is a guest book you can sign. It rests on an angled wall shelf that juts out from the left wall about 12 inches. Just beyond the guest book is a low 5 feet wooden bench against the left wall. Walk about 6 feet on a slight angle to your right to face a 10 feet high by 6 feet wide wall panel, introducing a final 7-minute film entitled Legacy. The film is triggered by a motion sensor in the ceiling in the center of the room. Text on the wall reads, Legacy. Our nation and world 
bear the unmistakable mark of Franklin Roosevelt's leadership. As one historian put it, every subsequent president has worked in the shadow of FDR. It is difficult to capture the essence of his complex legacy. Take a seat in this theater to hear what another American president thinks we owe to FDR. Turn left and walk about three feet to a passageway into the theater on your right. The theater is about 10 feet deep and 12 feet wide with a 5 by 10 feet screen at the front opposite the side where you're standing. Four eight feet long wooden benches sit in the center of the room just to the right. On each of the left and right walls are six photographs of ordinary Americans from the 40s to the present day. You can exit the theater through a passage on the opposite side of the wall panel. Walk about 10 feet forward and turn left to exit the lobby through a set of metal and glass-paned double doors, stepping from carpet onto a painted concrete floor. This concludes the 10th section of our tour. You can access the audio description for the next section of our tour, Behind the Scenes, by pressing the rightmost button in the top row of your player's keypad, or press 11 on your audio tour player. 11. Behind the Scenes. Approximately 3 minutes, 30 seconds. You are in a hallway facing a room filled with glass-walled and temperature-controlled storage rooms on either side of the hallway. They stretch forward about 40 feet. To your left is a large, black, 1930s-era convertible with a 3-feet-tall metal grill and white wall tires completely encased in a room of its own behind glass walls. This is FDR's 1936 Ford Phaeton. Turn left in front of the glass case and walk about six feet to come to an angled shelf display at waist height. It includes an interactive touchscreen exhibit detailing the operation and controls of the car for FDR. To listen to the information contained in this display and the additional collections in this area, please press 1111-1111 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to this additional material, please return to the long hallway, turn to your left, and walk about 20 feet past two wooden benches on your left. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 1111, FDR's Car Interactive and Archival Collections. 1936 Ford Phaeton. President Roosevelt enjoyed driving this car whenever he was at Hyde Park. Specially modified to be operated with hand controls, it gave him the freedom to drive despite his disability. The controls were designed and installed by Fred Yelye, a mechanic in Poughkeepsie. After FDR's death, Eleanor Roosevelt used the car until late 1946 when she presented it to the museum. It had been driven 19,143 miles. FDR Library and Museum. FDR Car Interactive Text. A tract screen. FDR's 1936 Ford Phaeton. Touch screen to begin. Home screen, FDR's 1936 Ford Phaeton. Learn more by choosing from the topics below. Main menu, 
taking a drive, archival film, FDR at the wheel, passenger stories, people and places, archival photos, custom controls, explore modifications. Custom controls. Learn more about the car's modifications by selecting an option below. Clutch and brake. This simple but ingenious lever controls the clutch and the brake. Moving the lever forward disengages the clutch when shifting gears. When the lever is pushed even further forward, the plate welded to the clutch pedal would press on the plate welded to the brake pedal to slow or stop the car. Accelerator lever. FDR controlled the speed of the car with his right hand by using this throttle lever mounted on the steering column. Gear shift. The car has a standard gear shift lever. Parking brake. This lever engages the parking brake. Cigarette dispenser. This clever device dispenses a lit cigarette. It allowed FDR to smoke using only one hand. St. Christopher Medal. St. Christopher is the patron saint of travelers. Taking a drive. FDR enjoyed driving around Hyde Park with friends, family, and guests. These home movies date from the late 1930s and early 1940s. FDR at the wheel. Read about FDR's driving style by choosing one of the stories below. Winston S. Churchill recalls a June 1942 tour of Hyde Park. He welcomed me with the greatest cordiality, and driving the car himself took me to the majestic bluffs over the Hudson River, on which Hyde Park, his family home, stands. The president drove me all over the estate, showing me its splendid views. In this drive, I had some thoughtful moments. Mr. Roosevelt's infirmity prevented him from using his feet on the brake, clutch, or accelerator. An ingenious arrangement enabled him to do everything with his arms, which were amazingly strong and muscular. He invited me to feel his biceps, saying that a famous prize fighter had envied them. This was reassuring, but I confess that when on several occasions the car poised and backed on the grass verges of the precipices over the Hudson, I hoped the mechanical devices and brakes would show no defects. Queen Elizabeth describes a drive to Top Cottage, June 11, 1939. President Roosevelt drove us in his car that was adapted to his use, requiring great dexterity with his hands. Motorcycle police cleared the road ahead of us, but the president pointed out sights, waved his cigarette holder about, turned the wheel, and operated the accelerator and the brake all with his hands. He was conversing more than watching the road and drove at great speed. There were several times when I thought we would go right off the road and tumble down the hills. It was very frightening, but quite exhilarating. It was a relief to get to the picnic. James Roosevelt on his father's driving style. Father always liked to drive around the Hyde Park area. I recall when he took Sam Rosenman and Jim Farley for a drive one day to show off a new road he'd had built in the backwoods. Like many of Father's home engineering projects, it wasn't as good as he thought it was. And he wasn't as good with the hand controls as he thought he was. As they neared the bottom of a hill, he accidentally squeezed the accelerator instead of the brake. 
The car careened around a curve at terrific speed before he brought it to a screeching halt. Turning around, Father found Farley almost in a faint, and Rosenman crossing himself. Laughing, Father asked his Jewish friend what in Lord's name he was doing. Sam said, "'Driving with you, I'm taking no chances,' Father roared. It became one of his favorite stories. Eleanor Roosevelt remembers her husband's escape from the Secret Service. Up at Hyde Park, my husband was amused by the bodyguards that were always around. My husband used to try the Secret Service because he would try and run away from them in his little car. And they had a terrible time over the country roads following. Sometimes they got stuck, and I can remember on one occasion when he led them through his tree plantations in the lower woods. They appeared at the house and said, Where is the president? And I said, I don't know. He hasn't come back. And the look on the men's faces was perfectly desperate, because they said, Our big car got stuck in the mud. We couldn't follow him. Now where is he? And at that moment, he drove up, looking triumphant, and said, Oh, were you looking for me? People and Places Touch below to browse photos of FDR driving. Photo caption text. 1. Roosevelt stops for a talk during a 1942 drive around his estate. 2. The president's distant cousin, Margaret Suckley, snapped this photo of him leaving for a picnic, October 19, 1938. Left to right, FDR, Mrs. Arthur Murray, spouse of Roosevelt's friend Arthur Murray, a former British MP, Margaret's brother, Arthur. 3. FDR inspects the forests on his estate with Professor Nelson Brown of the New York State College of Forestry, February 1944. 4. Roosevelt greets guests at a Hyde Park Conference of the National Youth Administration, NYA, October 1937. Left to right, ER, FDR, Nancy Cook, NYA Administrator Aubrey Williams, FDR Advisor Charles Tossig. 5. Roosevelt arrives at Top College with the Crown Prince of Norway, April 1939. 6. FDR with the King and Queen of England and his son James's wife, Betsy, during the royal couple's visit to Hyde Park, June 11, 1939. 7. FDR chats with a Hyde Park neighbor, September 1940. The president's son, Elliot, stands behind the car. 8. FDR at the wheel of his car for the first time, April 26, 1936. D.M. Keyes and V.I. Relier of the Ford Motor Company delivered the car to him. 9. The president takes Great Britain's King George VI and Queen Elizabeth on a tour of his estate, June 1939. 10. Roosevelt and Winston Churchill take a drive, September 1943. Brendan Bracken, Britain's Minister of Information, and C.R. Thompson, Churchill's naval aide, are in the back seat. 11. FDR and his dog, Fala, enjoy a drive on the estate, October 22, 1944. 12. FDR smiles for reporters from the front seat of his car, July 4, 1937. 13. Reporters gather around FDR's car at Top Cottage, August 27, 1938. 
Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia of New York City sits on the running board. Eleanor Roosevelt stands at right. 14. The president inspects progress on construction of the Roosevelt Library, September 23, 1939. His grandchildren, Kate and Sarah Roosevelt, stand in the back of the car. 15. FDR enjoyed driving his car along little-known paths in the woods near his home. You can see the resulting damage to the car's exterior today. Archival Collections Inside additional controlled storage rooms on either side of the long hallway are FDR's collections of paintings, ship models, sculpture, and furniture, and other museum archival collections. A nearby panel is labeled Painting Collection. During his lifetime, President Roosevelt acquired a diverse collection of hundreds of oil and watercolor paintings. Part of this collection is stored in this room. Roosevelt family history is represented in nearly 60 family portraits in the collection. FDR's interest in naval and maritime history is reflected in hundreds of paintings of ships, famous sea battles, and prominent naval officers. Roosevelt also enjoyed collecting paintings of landscapes and people in his beloved Hudson River Valley. And there are nearly 100 paintings created by New Deal artists. Many paintings in the library's collection were displayed in the White House during FDR's presidency. Turn around 180 degrees and walk about 10 feet to two wooden benches on either side of a tall, three-feet-wide blue panel with the -the behind-the-scenes text. It reads, A presidential library is much more than a museum exhibit. The Roosevelt Library preserves and protects 35,000 objects and over 17 million pages of documents. Only a small portion of these rich collections can be displayed in our exhibits. To make more of them accessible, we have opened up the walls of some of our collection storage rooms to give you an insider's view. In these rooms, you can see some of the unique personal collections gathered by FDR. There are also paintings, furniture, sculpture, and an archival storage room. Each day, library staff works with our collections in rooms like these. You may see a staff person at work in one today. Turn right and move about 10 feet to return to the long hallway and turn left. On the right side of the hallway are glass walls behind which are dozens of scale model ships of all kinds, from wooden schooners to luxury liners. A nearby text panel reads, FDR's Ship Model Collection. President Roosevelt had a deep interest in the sea that dated back to his childhood when he heard stories from his Delano relatives about the family's adventures in overseas trade. He spent a lifetime amassing a world-class collection of naval and maritime prints, drawings, manuscripts, rare books, and ship models. A highlight of the Roosevelt Library when it opened in 1941 was the Naval Room, where FDR showcased selections from his collection of over 400 ship models. Roosevelt purchased some of these. Others were gifts from friends and admirers. During his presidency, many were displayed in the White House. This room houses just a portion of this large collection. Turn left and continue another 12 feet along the hallway. On your left is a glass-walled room filled with furniture and sculpture. Text reads, Furniture and Sculpture Collection. 
Part of the library's furniture and sculpture collections are stored in this room. The furniture collection features many items used by the President and First Lady in their homes and at the White House, including antique furniture inherited from their Delano and Roosevelt ancestors. There are also furniture pieces produced at Val Kill Industries, the craft factory Eleanor Roosevelt and several friends operated during the 1920s and 1930s. The eclectic sculpture collection includes family pieces inherited by the Roosevelts, busts of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt by professional and amateur artists, depictions of famous naval figures collected by FDR, and sculptures created by New Deal artists. About 12 feet further along on your left is a room filled with boxes of documents. A text panel on the left wall reads, Archival Collections. There are more than 17 million pages of documents in 400 distinct collections in the library's archives. Each year, thousands of researchers from around the world come here to explore these collections, which include the president's personal and family papers, the papers covering his public career, Ellen Roosevelt's papers, and those of many Roosevelt friends and associates. The boxes you see here are only a small portion of over 22,000 in the archival collections. The boxes in this room are from the papers of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. They contain thousands of letters from the public written to the President and First Lady. FDR believed these spontaneous letters were among the most important in the library. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. Continue forward about 20 feet through a pair of metal double doors. To your right is a doorway to a staircase leading to the front lobby of the museum. Please pass through another set of doors to an elevator about 15 feet ahead on a slight angle to the left. The control panel, labeled in Braille, is on the wall to the right of the doors. Step into the elevator and on the control panel at right, press 1 for the lobby and exit. Stepping out of the elevators onto the carpeting of the first floor, you will enter a small vestibule with two restrooms at right and water fountains ahead about 8 feet. This is the same vestibule described at the beginning of the tour as you entered the first exhibit from the lobby area. From the water fountains, turn left and move about three feet into a hallway. To your left is a long hallway for a gallery of temporary exhibits from the library's collections. To your right is the carpeted area in front of the first exhibit. Walk about 20 feet to the museum lobby. You'll cross from carpet onto the stone tile floor of the lobby area. This concludes our audio-described tour. An attendant at the information desk at left will assist you with the return of your audio player and help with any information you may need to further explore the museum or surrounding area. We hope you've enjoyed your visit to the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum and that this audio-described tour was helpful to you. The museum is committed to helping all people appreciate the legacy of our nation's 32nd president. Thank you for visiting us, and we invite you to return again soon.